All right, today we are in Luke 19, 28 through 40. It will also be up on the screen. So Luke 19, 28 through 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And he said, and they said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Morning, church. In our modern world, some things are easier than ever, and some things are harder than ever. Right? Some things that are easier are finding shelter, finding food, finding information and entertainment. Not everyone has all these things but they're more available than they've ever been. Some things are harder, like focusing on things, reflecting on things. Never has there been more things available, and never has there been more things vying to take our attention away from us. It wasn't very long ago that people didn't walk around the world with supercomputers in their pockets, with programs that people, the, some of the smartest people in the world have designed in order to take as much of our attention each day as possible. Right, so we're, we're probably still coming to grips with the world that we live in and the changes that have happened. And in light of that, I want us to ask this morning, what does it look like to worship Jesus daily what does my daily worship of Jesus look like? And is my daily worship proportionate to the worthiness of my king? It's the question I want us to ask as we take a look at this text. Now, if you notice in our text this morning, Jesus is arriving at Jerusalem. For those of you who have been with us for the last couple years, we've been going through this book Jesus has charted and maintained a path to Jerusalem for most of the book of Luke. And now he's arriving at Jerusalem. 
Most of the book of Luke unfolds over the last three years of Jesus' life. These last few chapters of Luke will focus on the last week of Jesus' life. So what's happening is the narrative is slowing down, way, way down as we move into Jerusalem in order to highlight this last week of Jesus' life as the week where the things that he will say and do and accomplish give meaning and significance to everything else he said and did. So we're, get, we're getting to the climax of the book and things are, are ramping up right now as he enters Jerusalem. So let's take a look in verse 28. And as he said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. It might not sound like a big thing for a, a person to enter a city. We all leave and enter cities all the time. If I wanted to hop in my car, I could leave Minneapolis and enter Roseville or leave Minneapolis and enter Richfield in just a few minutes. And none of you would care. But th this is a lot different. Because Jesus isn't any guy entering any city. Right? He has this title. It starts with the letter C. We tend to think it's his last name, but it's not his last name. What's that title that starts with a C? It's Christ. Jesus the Christ. It's a Greek translation of the word Messiah. Jesus the Messiah. In the Old Testament, a Messiah is someone who's anointed, who, who God puts oil on them and selects them for a special call and a special purpose. The most notable anointed ones in the Old Testament are Israel's warrior kings, Saul and David. So, so when Jesus is, is coming to Jerusalem, he's not coming as any ordinary person. He's coming as a king. All right, okay, he's coming as a king. And the text makes that clear later on when the disciples say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He's a king arriving at his capital city. Right? So in the Old Testament, God set his king on the throne in Jerusalem to reign over his nation and the other nations. This is the king entering the capital city. It's like if a president entered the capital city of Washington, D.C. on Inauguration Day, it captures everyone's attention because something significant is happening and something far more significant is happening here. The king who is acknowledged by God, but not acknowledged by the ruling elite, not acknowledged by the Romans, not acknowledged by many of the citizens of Jerusalem, is about to enter his city as king, and he will demand worship. So when it says Jesus went into Jerusalem, this is a momentous event. And we can see why there's pandemonium breaking out as he approaches Jerusalem. We can even see why this gets him crucified later on. Because he is coming and he is making huge claims. And rightfully so. 
We're going to see in this text that this king has all authority. When a king enters a city to rule, the well-being of all of its people and all of its citizens come down to one thing, the character of that ruler. If that ruler has bad character, the people are going to suffer immensely, as history is filled with examples of. And if that, if that ruler has good character, well, then, then the people will be treated far better. So what we're going to look for in this text as the king enters his city is his character. So let's keep reading and see what is this king like? What is he like? When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, so two little villages, so Jesus is descending the Mount of Olives, going down into a valley, which he will go up into Jerusalem, and he's, going, he's passing through the farm villages that are on the way. At the Mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, his owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And he said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt. Okay, we're going to learn four things about Jesus in these verses that I just read. There's a lot in them, so we're just going to break it down and see the four things that we learn about Jesus. The first thing we learn about Jesus is that he is pure and he has a pure mission. So Jesus sends his disciples to fetch a colt. A colt is like a young horse or a donkey. We, we learn from other passages in the Bible that it's a donkey that they fetch for Jesus. And there's a detail about it. It says, which no one has ever yet ridden on. So Jesus rides into his capital city specifically on an animal that no one has ever yet ridden on. And I believe that's pointing to the purity of Jesus and his mission, the uniqueness of Jesus and his mission, and the purity that he would get an animal that no one else had ever yet ridden on. Which, my friends, is unbelievably good news for us. How many of you are sick and tired of the politicians and rulers with corrupt motives? And we have it pretty good here. You travel into another country, where there isn't the boundaries and the regulations we have here that stop things from happening, and people get treated in awful, awful ways. We, we saw this happen in Afghanistan last year, right? When evil rulers are set free to hurt people, it's, it's awful. It's awful. And here comes Jesus who has a higher amount of authority and power than any of these wicked earthly rulers, who holds mine and your destiny in the palm of his hand. And I have good news for us this morning. His heart is pure. He's not selfish. He actually cares about you. He actually loves you. He's not out for corrupt, corrupt gain at all. We have a pure king church. 
What's something else we learn about Jesus? We learn that Jesus, as king, owns everything. Jesus owns everything. So, he says, there's a colt on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Everything we possess and own is on loan from Jesus. You don't actually own anything. Contrary to popular belief, I don't own anything. Jesus lets us have our things for a little while, and then in a few years we die and we don't get to take any of it with us. He is the king who owns everything, and when he asks for this donkey, he's only asking for what already belongs to him. And I want to strive to have this attitude that Jesus as king owns everything I possess down to the very clothes on my back. I don't own anything at all. And this is also really good news for us, church. Because try as we might, we are incapable of ultimately providing for ourselves. We can lose our jobs. We can lose our health. We can lose our money like that. How good that we have a king who owns everything and is able to provide for us anything we need exactly when we need it. This is what we see here when Jesus asks for this donkey and it's provided for him. That King Jesus is the king who owns everything. Now, I wouldn't recommend going up to someone and saying, hey, the Lord has needed that. I need you to give that to me. But I would encourage us to have the same attitude of trust and dependence on him that there's nothing that he can't give us that we need in order to follow him. Thing three we learn about Jesus. Jesus has all authority. Jesus has all authority. Something that's indicative of a king is that he sits on his throne and he commands other people what to do and they better do what he says. That's what a king essentially is, right? Someone who other people obey. And we can see that the disciples in this story, in this text, they obey Jesus when he tells them to go and get the cold for him. What's amazing is that not just people, but even circumstances obey King Jesus. He says, go and fetch me this cult. And it says, that they found it just as he had told, him, told them. Jesus is not only able to tell people what to do, he's able to command circumstances to be exactly as he wants him, them to be. This is also good news for us. Your circumstances are in the palm of Jesus right now. Everything you're going through is in the palm of Jesus. There isn't one inch of this universe he is not ruling over. One inch of your life he's not ruling over. How could he know that there would be this cult and these people, and as soon as his disciples came and asked for the cult, they would receive it, unless at that moment he was ruling over that situation? and he's ruling over your situation, and he's ruling over my situation as king without questions, and anyone who thinks they're in charge is only deceiving themselves for a little bit, and they're about to find out what's really the case. 
three reasons, three things we see so far that we should worship Jesus for. It's a fourth thing. And I think it's actually the most amazing thing so far in this text. The most amazing thing we see about Jesus so far in this text should be the greatest reason we worship so far in this text. And that's that Jesus, the king, who is mighty, is humble. Jesus is humble. Now just stick with me for a minute. I want to explain where this text is saying that Jesus is humble. There's a point where he says about the cult that the Lord has need of it. So Jesus has need of this cult. Now, why, why does Jesus have need of this cult? Did he get tired? Like, did he walk around the wilderness for a few years and was like, guys, I, I, I just can't make it to Jerusalem. Go get me an animal. Like, that, that is not what's going on here. Jesus needs this cult in order to communicate something about himself to other people. So there's a message about him in the animal he chooses to ride. It's common for kings to ride animals, especially when they're on a journey into their city. And so the animal that he picks is going to be an animal that communicates something about who he is and what he came to do. Before we talk about the colt and what that says about him, I want to point out that the colt is very different from the animal he rides when he comes back a second time. Do you guys know that? He rides an animal in Revelation when he comes back. Revelation 19.11 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So Jesus comes back on a war horse to make war against his enemies. But that is not what he approaches his city, Jerusalem, with the first time he arrives. The first time he arrives at Jerusalem as king, he arrives not on a war horse, but on a peaceful beast of burden that you would never bring into the battlefield. The prophet Zechariah helps us see what this means that Jesus approaches and rides into Jerusalem on a colt. Here's what Zechariah says. Chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble. And mounted on a donkey. On a colt the full of a donkey. One of the most amazing things in all the world about Jesus is that he is the highest and mightiest king of all, and he's also the humblest person who ever lived. He has the most lowly, humble heart of any person who ever lived. 
And we see this in how he enters Jerusalem. That word humble from Zechariah, that Hebrew word, also means poor or without property. Jesus enters Jerusalem as a poor man. It says that they what, threw their cloaks over the donkey. That's a poor man's saddle. For, for people who couldn't afford a saddle, they throw their cloaks on the donkey. It says his multitude of disciples are around him as he enters Jerusalem. As we read through this gospel, you don't get the impression these are rich or powerful people. These are the poor, farmers, the destitute people of the land who come and follow Jesus. It's so astonishing that, that this king of all the world, when he's entering Jerusalem, comes not on a war horse, but on a humble donkey with the poor all around him, himself on a poor donkey with the cloaks on it, and he enters the city, showing that he's humble. And in this church, of all the things we've learned so far, is the best news about Jesus. The best news about Jesus. I haven't been invited to many parties at the White House or the governor's mansion or the Wells Fargo Tower. Why is that? Why haven't I been invited to those parties? Because the rich and powerful like to associate with the rich and powerful and exclude those who aren't rich and powerful Unless, unless the person who is rich and powerful is also humble. When the person with all power is also completely humble, he loves to serve needy people like you and me. He doesn't despise needy people who tarnish his image, who make him look less exclusive, who make him look less important. He loves needy people. And that's exactly who our Jesus is surrounded by as he enters Jerusalem, the needy people who followed him. Jesus is looking for people who know that they need him. That is what he's looking for. Do you know that you need him this morning? When his heart is humble, it changes the way he approaches the city and it changes the way he approaches you and me, which he's doing this morning. He's approaching us. And how are we going to respond to him? When you're humble and you love to serve others, you love to care for others, it changes the way he approaches us in our sinfulness. Because Jesus is humble, he's also gentle with our sins. He's gentle with us as sinners. And that means, church, that in, instead of fleeing from Jesus in our sinfulness, we're able to flee to him in our sinfulness because he's humble. This is what an author named Dane Ortland writes in his book, Gentle and Lowly. When we sin, we are encouraged to bring our mess to Jesus because he will know just how to receive us. He doesn't handle us roughly. He doesn't scowl or scold. He doesn't lash out the way many of our parents did. 
all of this restraint on his part is not because of a deluded view of our sinfulness. He knows our sinfulness far more deeply than we do. Indeed, we are aware of just the tip of the iceberg of our depravity, even in the most searching moments of self-knowledge. His restraint simply flows from his tender heart for his people. We have a humble king, and because he's humble, he exercises restraint towards us in our sinfulness, and he welcomes us gently. The Bible is full of stories of proud kings who smash rebellious people without question. And we have a humble king who receives us with mercy. Now, what's the point of all that? What's the point of all that? What we're going to see in the next few verses is that when there is a king who is higher than all, who is also humbler than all, it makes him more worthy than all. These attributes of our Lord Jesus make him the most worthy king who is worthy of worship beyond any other ever. Ever. And we don't know to what degree the disciples thought when Jesus entered Jerusalem he was going to be crucified and died. It seems like they're confused about that. But they do know that he's the king who's worthy. And they do respond to him rightly in these next few verses. Let's see. Let's see how they respond to our Jesus. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for the mighty works that they had seen. We can feel the anticipation building. Jesus is already on his way down the Mount of Olives, approaching Jerusalem. And at this moment, what makes the disciples more glad than anything in the world is that their Jesus, who has all authority, is humble, and he's coming in his city to rule. And what they do is they respond to him by casting their cloaks on the ground, right? a sign of reference for him. There isn't a timid or small sense of worship for Jesus in these verses. It's overwhelming praise for who he is and what he's done and how he's accepted needy sinners. And it creates a sense of joy in them and gladness. Man, I wish, I wish that my moments with Jesus are the moments where my emotions of joy bubbled out of me more than any time else. Not football. Not time with my wife. Not time with the bros. But when I'm worshiping Jesus is when I want to be joyful the most. Because he's worthy of my joy. And they praised him with a loud voice saying, blessed is the king, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. 
because Jesus has come down to humbly approach us, we have peace with the kingdom of heaven, peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. The presence of the worthy king Jesus responds in the praise and delight of his, of his people. I hope that's what it's like for us every, every time we gather together in, in, to worship Jesus on Sundays in our MCs, that as Jesus comes close to us in the Holy Spirit, we would respond with joy and praise just like he's worthy of. To not respond to Jesus that way, in a sense, makes us glory thieves. Like, Jesus is worthy of something, and we're not giving him what he's worthy of. We don't want to do that. We want to give this king the praise and worship that he's worthy of, don't we, church? Verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. When we praise and worship Jesus passionately, like he deserves, inevitably it's going to make other people uncomfortable and offend them. And that must never be a reason we stop worshiping Jesus. We must never not give Jesus the praise he's worthy of because we're worried about making someone else uncomfortable. I think this applies to our worship gatherings. I want to grow in praising Jesus more passionately. I want us to grow in Jesus, praising Jesus more passionately. And one reason I don't praise Jesus more passionately is because I'm scared of what you guys will think of me. But the praise Jesus is worthy of should make that not even matter at all. So may, may we grow in praising Jesus and not giving a darn what people think about it. They want him to rebuke his disciples, but Jesus says, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This means that our Jesus is worthy and he will receive the praise he is worthy of. And nothing and no one can stop it from happening. If the Pharisees were able to silence his disciples, the stones would start praising Jesus. He will get his worship. He will get what he's worthy of. So may we not be silent. May we be among those who give Jesus the worship and honor and praise that he's due. Let us be among the ones who worship him as he deserves. So one way that this should land on us, one way that this should challenge us, is how does our worship of Jesus look daily? He's not just worthy of being praised on Sunday. Is he? No. Seven days a week, our King Jesus deserves worship. And I'm afraid for myself, I'm afraid for us, that when we spend hours a day 
on smartphones and streaming and apps that we are unable to give Jesus the worship that he's due. I don't have all the answers to this problem this morning, but I do want to call us into a different lifestyle than we have and that I have right now. There's a verse in Psalm 119, and I think Psalm 119 captures what a lifestyle of praising Jesus looks like. And Psalm 119, 164 says, seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Which means, church, that we're going to have to pick what kind of lifestyle we have. We're going to have to choose. Right? You can't worship Jesus seven times a day if you reach for your smartphone seven times a day. You only have so many hours in the day, so much attention in your mind, so much passion in your heart. We have to choose. And I really believe that we as a church will move into the intimacy with Jesus that we crave and have the powerful mission in our cities like we want to when we start to worship Jesus like he is worthy. That's the kind of people Jesus loves to pour out his spirit on and use. Those who fall down before him and praise him as worthy. So my, my challenge for us this morning is that we would start to pray to Jesus, read his word, sing songs to him, and think about him daily, throughout the day, more than ever. And if you hear me putting a to-do list on you, like a checklist that you have to do, that is not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to encourage us to take advantage of the ways our best friend, our Savior, has given us to know him better. If your spouse said to you, hey, if you do these things in order to help our relationship grow, you would say, awesome, I want our relationship to grow. And Jesus said, hey, I'm giving you these things, my word, worship, prayer, meditation, so that our relationship will grow. And church, let's grow. Let's grow in praising our Jesus. Not to get into a relationship with him, but because he's already died for us and brought us into a relationship with him. If you're at a loss and want to know, just like, hey, what's one thing I can do to start praising Jesus all the time like he's worthy of? When I'm so busy, when there's so, much, so many distractions, it's one thing Charlotte and I have done lately that's been so sweet is we've just gone for a walk as many days of the week as we're able to. I know it's winter, but you can put on warm stuff. And... One of us will just take out a, the Bible and one of us will just read a chapter of the Bible to the other person. And then we'll pray for a few minutes. And then, I know it looks weird, but we'll even sing a song. And it's simple. It's so simple. And I'm not saying you have to do what I'm doing. I'm just throwing out an example out there. If you're married, you can do that. If you're single, you can call up a friend and do that. Or just, just go for a walk, just... Just you and Jesus, there's so many options. But I don't want us to feel like we don't know how we can take this next step in praising Jesus when he's given us very simple steps in how to grow in worshiping and praising him. So what I want us to walk away with this morning 
is that the high and mighty king is the humble king who is therefore worthy of all of our worship and praise. Church, I'm looking forward to worshiping him now in the rest of the service with you. Let's pray together.